Hi, Sarah here. I'm one of the co-hosts of Female Founders Weekly, and this episode is sponsored by my company, Hostel Pass. Hostel Pass is a digital discount card for the best of European travel, especially the best hostels. I started this company after my own travels, where I was on a really tight budget, which meant I ended up in some pretty horrible accommodation situations. That's why I spent the next six years finding and partnering with the best hostels all across Europe, the kinds of places that travelers and their parents would feel good about. We've now got hundreds of hostels on our platform and we've managed to secure exclusive discounts and bonuses like free welcome drink, late checkout, or free breakfast at every single hostel. We don't just have hostels on Hostel Pass. You can also find discounts on museums, walking tours, river cruises, food tours, e-sims, and so much more. If you're looking to join the thousands of travelers using Hostel Pass to save big on their trip, use code FFW at checkout to take 20% off your first year of membership. Check us out at hostelpass.co. That's H-O-S-T-E-L-P-A-S-S dot C-O. And code FFW for 20% off at checkout. Thanks for listening. Hi, Sarah here. And on this week's episode of Female Founders Weekly, Alex and I interviewed Georgiana Gerdishi. She's the founder and CEO of Answer. Answer is a home salon beauty brand on a mission to simplify beauty. At its core, Answer makes expensive salon treatments accessible to everyone by providing convenient at-home alternatives. Georgiana initially launched Answer in 2019 by bringing the first ever at-home keratin treatments to market, rivaling expensive salon alternatives. In this interview, we cover how Georgiana got started with her business, how she got to her first 100 sales, then her first 1,000. We talk about how she gets her first huge piece of publicity and also about any advice she has for people starting businesses today. So stick around. You really don't want to miss this episode. Georgiana, so excited to have you on the podcast today. Thank you so much for coming. Excited to be here. This is actually my first podcast in English, so I'm a bit nervous, but I hope it will go fine. Oh my God, you're going to be great. So give us a quick snapshot of what it's been like since you've launched. Going back to the beginning, I didn't really have any marketing budget. So I started off very small and I was constantly thinking about how I can get in front of potential customers. The first big article that we got was in Daily Mail just a few weeks after pandemic started. And uh, the headline was basically highlighting that a young female entrepreneur came up with this great product that is a great alternative to treat your hair while the salons are closed. And obviously it was also highlighting the success that we've had in a very short period of time and the fast growth that we experienced at the beginning. Didn't have any connections to the journalist, didn't use a PR company. It was basically just me guessing journalists' email addresses and then put together a press release, send it over. And eventually one journalist came back to me saying that your story sounds very interesting. I'll be more than happy to feature you. And then we did a short interview. And then I actually didn't know when it's going to be uh, going live until it went. And uh, then we saw a huge spike in traffic. And then I assumed, okay, it must be out now. And that day was just insane. I kind of feel like it was the moment when we actually got on the map. So yeah, that was a very, very valuable thing for our brand awareness. 
It's so interesting that you didn't use traditional PR as well. Like you just reached out to a journalist and pitched your story. I think it's really cool. And I think a lot of founders think that they need to spend thousands on agencies starting out in order to just get in front of people. So it's really interesting to hear that you did it that way. I guess you become quite creative when you don't have the money to do it the traditional yes. way. So I had no <laughs> other options, sure. really. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that is for sure. Okay, can you give me a quick overview of your life before Answer? What were you up to and how did you get to a point where you were starting a company? So I studied business at Estonian Business School. My background, I was born and raised in Finland, but my parents are Romanian. And when I started my studies, I decided to move to Estonia because they had a great business school. And I majored in marketing and PR. And I guess I was quite a classical business student who wasn't quite sure like uh, what the like the career will be that I will end up doing the bottom line probably was that I was quite lost and I never knew like mm -hmm. what's the thing that I really want to focus on I always knew that at some point uh, when the timing is right uh, I would like to pursue something on my own so I always kept my eyes open and tried to spot like different market gaps and eventually I graduated from uni in 2018 and then at the beginning of 2019 I started working on answer full-time. So what was like the aha moment what what made you realize that there was a problem and that you were the one to solve it? Basically, the idea for the entire brand, it came through an everyday experience or everyday struggle that I had myself. Mm -hmm. So I have very frizzy hair and uh, <laughs> I was constantly straightening it with a hot iron every day. And I knew that it's not going to do good for my hair. And then eventually I discovered salon keratin treatments. What a keratin treatment does is that it defreezes the hair. So it's not a straightening treatment. If you have like curly hair, your hair will not go pin straight. The curls will be softer, but definitely not straightened. So yeah, the greatest benefit of a keratin treatment is that it takes out all the frizz and it brings in a lot of shine. And I really love the results and I got totally hooked to it. But at the same time, it didn't really make any sense to me why it was so expensive. At least in Finland, when I used to do it, it was 300, 400 mm -hmm. euros, something like that, like insanely expensive. And the uh, The technique didn't seem like anything that I could not do myself at home. And then I went into Google and I started searching for at-home products for doing keratin treatment. And to my surprise, I couldn't find anything. And that was very surprising because I knew how like saturated beauty industry is in general. Usually whatever you're mm -hmm. looking for, someone has already done it. But yeah, I simply couldn't find any at-home keratin treatments out there. That was the moment that I realized that I managed to find a market gap. And I thought that if I'm looking for something like this, there must be women out there who would definitely use it only if we can provide it in a convenient and easy to access alternative. Awesome. But I mean, even discovering the gap in the market, you're still entering beauty, you're still entering cosmetics, hair care, which as you've said, is really saturated and it's been quite nerve wracking thinking like, my gosh, I feel like I'm taking on one of the biggest challenges here. It was, yeah, and it was very scary. I mean, I was basically taking a step towards the unknown. I had no entrepreneurial mm -hmm. experience, nor beauty industry experience. I didn't have anything. 
But I thought that the worst thing that can happen is that I will just fail. And that cannot be worse than uh, not trying at all. And uh, yeah, when I was thinking about the product, I acknowledged that I will not have the budget to advertise it at the beginning. So I thought that it needs to be something that is easy to like catch attention in the social media. Mm -hmm. And as a product, it was very like a social media friendly in the way that you could basically easily demonstrate what it does. So we very much relied on before and afters, like this is how your hair looks before mm -hmm. the treatment, this is how it looks after, and this is how you can achieve it. So uh, yeah, it was quite a straightforward product. So I felt like I should definitely give it a go. And if it doesn't yep. turn out to, to be successful, then at least I have the experience uh, of trying. How supported did you feel when you kind of first told friends and family like I'm gonna start this at home <laughs> hair treatment business did did you feel like you had connections that helped you or did people say yeah go for it I mean my close friends and especially my boyfriend were extremely supportive my family not that much because my family I mean we don't have a entrepreneurial background my dad is a bus driver and my mom is a university <laughs> researcher so yeah they they don't really understand the entrepreneurship as a career path but yeah my my friends were very supportive my boyfriend as well and actually my boyfriend is now also involved in the in the company full time and I kind of feel like his support has been extremely important because there's there are difficult moments that you question yourself yes. and then he's always there I mean he's been like believing in me more than I've ever have so uh, yeah I don't take that for granted it's extremely important what job title have you given him uh <laughs> <laughs> he has a branding background, so he is responsible for everything related to branding and visuals. Head of brand. Yeah, head of brand, basically. Yeah. But I mean, we have a nice way of working together. We're never like overlapping. I have my things that I focus on. He has his things. And then we connect and kind of like brainstorm different areas. So yeah, we, we, we yeah. it's been great. Amazing. I feel like we need to do a whole separate podcast on relationships and startups because that is like a whole nother topic um, <laughs> totally. about how they affect friends, families, partners. But back to answer. So you have decided to go for it. Some people are supportive, some people not so much. <laughs> Talk to us about how you source the product and how you funded it kind of like what were those initial steps to get going so yeah as mentioned I didn't have any background in the beauty industry so obviously didn't have any connections either so it was basically me and Google <laughs> my best friend I was googling uh, <laughs> different suppliers around the world and then I basically just started contacting them trying to pitch them idea and obviously it was very difficult to get them to understand the concept because it was something entirely new. The suppliers were used to doing such products for salons. So for the first time, they actually heard that someone wants to do it in an at-home format. And it came from someone who didn't have any experience in the beauty industry. So that part was extremely challenging. And I guess if I don't remember wrong, I ended up contacting over 80 suppliers until I found the wow. one and eventually found a supplier in Brazil. And we started working with them and they also agreed on a very low minimum order quantity because that was also very important uh, in the beauty industry. The suppliers usually require very high 
uh, order quantities. So uh, with yeah. the supplier, we agreed on a 1,000 units, which back then still felt like a lot. <laughs> but yes. uh, yeah, it, it was something that I could work on. And then... You were self-funding this? Well, I mean, I didn't have any savings. So that was also a very tricky part. And it was such a hassle Mm -hmm. to figure out how I'm going to fund the first inventory. I ended up checking with all the banks if they will give me a business loan. Mm -hmm. That didn't work out. No one really wanted uh, Mm -hmm. to take the risk because... I mean, there was no business yet. So uh, yeah, yeah, that wasn't a, a an option. So eventually I borrowed the money from my family, uh, which is interesting because they weren't that supportive, but then they agreed that maybe they should support me to that extent so I can actually see and try. And uh, yeah, I guess they today they don't regret it. <laughs> <laughs> did yes, you give them that. equity or any kind of like, did they have any stake in the company? No, no. So it was just a loan, which I paid them back uh, as uh, we started having nice. revenue in the in the business. Nice. Oh, that that's definitely a, sh- a show of support, you know, like give it a go and we'll see what happens. In a way, in a way, yeah. But I needed to convince them uh, quite a lot until they yes. understood, understood what I'm about to do. So then you've got your thousand pieces and you're you're ready to launch. At this point, are you full time on Answer? Yeah, so I, I started working on it full time from the get go because I know like people are different, but I as a person, I cannot focus on more than one thing at a time. So I knew that if I want to do this properly, I will need to focus on it full time. So I resigned from my full time job. I think it was February 2019 and then eventually managed to launch it in August 2019. So it basically took like eight months to get everything set. Obviously, the production time and lead time with the suppliers are quite long. And then we needed to organize the shoot and build up the website. So yeah, definitely took longer than what I anticipated. But eventually we had everything together and we were ready to to hit live. So how long did that take from the concept to your first moment of launching the company? From the idea to launching probably one and a half year. So I discovered keratin treatments at the beginning of 2018. And after that, I kind of decided that I want to do it in a at-home format. But then I was also studying at the same time. So I knew that I cannot be studying and uh, starting a business. So I was kind of like waiting for graduating. And then after that, I also resigned from my full-time job and then started working on on launching the brand. So from the idea to launching roughly one and a half year. That's really good. Something that we talk a lot about on the podcast is the huge change in responsibility between creating and developing your idea into a product and actually shifting to launching and you have Mm. to become a marketer and a salesperson and all these things. What was that experience like for you going from product development to product launch? Well, I guess today I'm very like thankful for that naive me that I was back then. I didn't really, I thought thought that it would be so much more easier because it's one product and I'm going to be selling it on an online store. So how can it be 
complicated. Turned out to be very complicated. I mean, there are a million mm-hmm. things that need to be set up before you you're le- ready to to launch. So definitely needed to wear many hats. And at the beginning, it was only me doing it. Well, uh, my boyfriend did do uh, did the branding at the beginning, but otherwise, I did everything. The change in responsibility. I mean, it was huge, but at the same time, I kind of felt like it was needed and I really enjoyed every single piece of it because it also taught me so much and in my opinion like being an entrepreneur and starting your own business is the best way to learn things fast on the go and you cannot really get yourself prepared to it you will just figure it out on the go. How did you then go and get your first hundred sales? What was that process like? Or even your first sale, What? who was it? How did it happen? Yeah, that's that's a good one. So mm-hmm. I remember that uh, we launched on the 18th of August. And prior to that, we had a period of two weeks when we were running a pre-launch campaign. It was basically signing up to the waiting list and all the people that signed up to the waiting list were participating in a giveaway. So with that, we managed to collect a couple of thousands of emails. So when we launched, we basically already had a small audience that we could send out the the launch newsletter. So through that, I guess on the first day, we got 10 orders, which was great. But then then on the second... So exciting! Yeah, but on the second day, I remember waking up and then opening the order page and there was no orders. And I remember being so panicked and scared and thinking like, this must have been a mistake. I don't know what I was thinking to even try this out. There is no people who wants... I mean, really questioning myself and decision that the... I I decided to do. But then, yeah, I mean, I guess that's humane, but also understood that uh, there is no way people would just find your way to to your website, no matter how great <laughs> your, your product mm-hmm. is or how great your brand is. You just need to first get in front of those people before they will find you. So uh, yeah, at the beginning, we didn't really have any marketing budgets. So we needed to be very creative in terms to how we get our brand in front of the people. Uh, what we did at the beginning was that we reached out to micro-influencers and asked them if they would be interested to try out our products. Didn't request them to post anything about it. We just hoped that they would like it enough so that they will share about it on their social channels. And that's what eventually happened. So I I guess we sent out like 200 products to 200 micro-influencers and we started getting a nice traction. Yeah. It was slow, obviously. I mean, it's not like you're you're going to get like a lot of orders, but at least it's great for brand awareness. And we did start getting orders little by little. And then by the end of the year, 2019, so basically three and a half months after launching, we managed to sell out our first inventory, which, which was 1,000 units. So that was a great period of time to kind of like validate the concept and conclude that there is a clear product market fit. And we did that with no budgets, really. Amazing. How did you find those micro-influencers? It was definitely a lot of manual work, so we didn't work with any agencies. I just basically shortlisted everything myself, didn't use any tools. I was just uh, searching on IG directly and profiles that seemed to be 
suitable for the brand and the product that we were selling. We just shortlisted it and then we we contacted. And when I say we, I mean I. <laughs> there was no one else back then. So yeah, it was just a lot of manual work, but turned out to be very effective. So you've gotten your first inventory fully sold. What were your next moves to get to, say, five or 10,000 sales? So by the end of the year 2019, we basically already had some money because we had sold the first stock. And I knew that that money needs to be invested in marketing. So at the beginning, I start, started learning myself how to run paid social ads, realized that I'm not really good at it and I will just end up by like burning the money without really getting any results. So eventually we hired a freelancer who was very like expert in paid social ads. So he started running our paid social ads and the results were very good at the beginning. So we kept on scaling the spend. And then, well, eventually pandemic started and we started getting even more traction due to that. And then happened all the PR and the great articles that, that we got secured. So, yeah, basically it was just focusing on how to get the advertising started. I'm interested in your subscription model as well, because I'm wondering if that really helped you kind of snowball from a thousand sales to 5,000. Did you launch your subscription model right from the very beginning? We did. Yeah. So the nature of the product is that you, if you want to maintain the, the results, you should redo the treatment every second month. So that was mm -hmm. the reason why I felt like it's very natural to also provide a subscription model. So we did offer yes. that from the from the get go. Uh, and was it popular? It was. Po I mean, with subscription models, is probably a a matter of how you like model it. So at the beginning, we were sending a new product every second month. But we were billing mm -hmm. the customer every month. So that's how we made the installments quite small compared to a one-off order. So let's say if our uh, one-off order would be, I think it was $49.90 back then, then we gave a small discount for the subscription model, obviously. And then it was billed every second month. So it was $19.90 per month. So that was very appealing for many people. So we did have like a lot of subscription orders at the beginning and we're still doing it, but we're, we've changed the model a bit. That's due to technical reasons. The model that we initially had was very, very tempting for many. So we did have a lot of subscription orders. Did you have any crises during this time? Were there any moments where you were like, oh my God, what am I going to do? Something's going very yes. wrong. Oh my God. Yeah. I guess like we grew so fast that it was very hard to adapt to the increasing demand that we experienced. And then combining that with the pandemics and all the supply chain challenges that we had. So there was a period of time that we were sold out for probably one and a half month. And that was very difficult because we obviously still had all the fixed costs that we needed to cover, but there was no revenue mm -hmm. stream coming in because we had nothing to, to sell. So that was a lesson learned. And now I always am very careful to check that we have enough stock that is keeping up with the demand. So yeah, that's that's very important. Did you have right? loads of angry customers? We did have a bunch, but it was actually very surprising to see how understanding people were because they understood the global situation and there were a lot of like shipping delays 
but I always email them personally. So I never like delegated that to our support team. So whenever we had any crisis uh-huh. or any shipping delays or stock delays or whatever, I always made sure to reach out to the customers myself personally. And I guess that helps mm-hmm. because then they understand that there is an actual real person behind that brand. And mm-hmm. yeah, it's not a huge organization or anything. So uh, yeah, uh, we were very lucky that people were so nice and understanding. But obviously, it's something that we always try to kind of like improve so that there will not be any any delays in the future. Was there a moment, I imagine at this point, yes, where you realized or thought, we've made it? <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> in all honesty, I still don't know if we've made it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, every day there's so many challenges that need to be tackled and that really gets you carried away. So that's why I always try to also celebrate the small wins. But I guess one of the moments that has really stick to my mind is, again, going back to the Daily Mail article, because (laughs) that was really like a huge, huge pinch me moment. When the article got published on that day, we received 450 orders And that was just crazy because I remember when I started the business, my goal was to get 10 orders a day and then I could kind of like consider that a real proper business. And then it was just, I couldn't believe it when we started seeing so many orders coming in. So yeah, that that was a, uh, a great moment that I will never forget. That's amazing. Amazing. And I can see you've got some more PR recently. So do you feel like that something that's worked really well for you over the last few years traditional print digital PR yeah definitely and uh, we focus on it a lot today and uh, with PR it's very important to just get yourself featured in one magazine and then it will also get or catch the interest of other magazines as well so uh, it's like a snowball effect really And Mm -hmm. basically, we now have a good list of journalists that we always send our press releases to. For example, now that we had the rebranding, we made sure that we message that change to all the journalist contacts that we had. So we did get nice PR coverage on the rebranding as well. And it's, yeah, I cannot uh, highlight the importance of traditional PR still in these modern days. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So let's talk money a little bit. Sounds like we've talked quite a lot about marketing Mm. and subscription models, PR, digital paid ads. Is that the majority of your budget? It goes on continual marketing? Definitely. Yeah. Last year, for example, 40, no, sorry, 35% of the revenue went into marketing. So uh, yeah, we do like focus a lot on marketing. And I also do acknowledge that at the beginning, if we want to like grow fast and become big, we really need to put everything back into marketing. And there is no way around yeah. it, in my opinion. And it's it's super important. And uh, it's usually when you read those amazing articles, like, oh, such a big, successful female entrepreneur. When I look into my own bank account, it doesn't really reflect. <laughs> because it's right. honestly just like really putting everything back into yeah. the business. And yeah, that's the name of the game, I guess. Mm. Yeah. It pretty much is, isn't it? So with such a big focus on marketing and such fast growth, like amazing scale, even in year one, um, at what point did you feel like you needed to raise in order to keep up? 
So basically at the beginning, I was really focused on bootstrapping. So we didn't raise any money until one and a half year after launching. And that's why mm-hmm. we always made sure that we don't overspend and we, because we basically couldn't afford making a loss because we were managing everything on, on cash flow. So each time we acquire a new customer, we make sure that it breaks even on its first order. And then eventually last summer, we decided to raise an advisory round and raise 250,000 euros because we needed more inventory and more money to, to pour into advertising. When you raised the 250, did it all go on marketing or at this point are you starting to grow a a small team? We did hire, yeah, when we raised the 250K, we also hired two people. We needed someone on social media. Well, I mean, we are a very social media friendly brand. And then I Mm -hmm. was basically managing all the channels myself. And I'm not that good with social media, honestly. So I knew that we will probably need to hire someone who is like really into social media. And we wanted to start TikTok. And I had no experience with TikTok. So that was the moment when we hired our social media manager and also a marketing manager. So a person who is now running all of our paid social ads and influencer marketing. Awesome. I just want to ask a little bit about your import-export side of the business. I know you are like importing goods that are manufactured in different continents Mm. and changing suppliers and you've got customers all around the world. Is that is that something that you find really challenging managing import-export kind of like globally at scale? I guess that's after financials, the second most challenging part of the running the business. Right. And it came as such a surprise how complicated logistics and import and exports really are. They even have their own terminology. They're like speaking their own language. So uh, yeah. <laughs> I know I need like an encyclopedia of acronyms. Exactly. For like just exactly. importing a bra from one country to another. <laughs> yeah. So that was a huge learning curve. Now I do understand the basics. It's not that I'm very good at it. But also came to learn that given the global situation, it's very important to have the production as close to your customer base as possible. So basically, we started off with a Brazilian supplier and then the shipping costs were just insanely expensive and they kept on like increasing and increasing. And then eventually last year, we made the decision to start looking for an European supplier. So and now our supplier is in Italy and that makes things so much more easier because the shipping, let's say it used to take over a month to ship the stock from Brazil to, to Europe. Now it takes only, I don't know, five days from Italy to, and we actually have three warehouse locations in the UK, Finland and Germany. And a final ops question, because I know... Um... A lot of businesses starting in developing products like yours that have got, you know, they take formulas um, to manufacture and they're either in cosmetics or cleaning. Um, What's the process like to kind of get approved as a beauty brand? Do you need certain licenses? Is that true? Is it different in the UK and Europe these days? Kind of like what would be your advice to make sure that you've got yourself covered if you're starting out in beauty? Yeah, that was also something that I learned only after I started working mm-hmm. on the on the product. So actually registering a cosmetic product in EU and UK is quite bureaucratic. 
And at the beginning, I tried to do it myself and eventually realized that I am simply not experienced enough. And that's something you probably don't want to risk making it like wrong or making any mistakes with that process. So my advice on that is to partner up with a compliance company. There are a lot of great ones in UK and in Europe Mm -hmm. that will just take over that process and they will just carry out the the compliance and registration process to you. And it's actually quite like it takes a lot of time when you start working on a new cosmetic product, you should like schedule at least half a year until like you start developing it to the moment that you actually will get it uh, launched because it's a lot of testing and then the registration and compliance is uh, is a long process so uh, yeah Mm. at least half a year (laughs) there's so many barriers to entry honestly it's like it's really difficult finding a manufacturer it's really difficult to register because it's like the same in garment manufacturing it's just like it's a wonder we ever start anything honestly (laughs) no but that that that, that's the thing that I was saying that it's good that when you start you're so naive and you don't really know what to expect how hard can it be yeah how hard can it be (laughs) well it's it's quite hard but it's not impossible (laughs) yes you're so right you're so right (laughs) so I'm curious about a little bit more of the nitty-gritty and the finances if you don't mind my asking firstly what is your seed round goal do you know yet We're looking to raise 2 million and that will be used for scaling up the business. And our goal is to enter US at the beginning of next year. And the actual sort of unit economics of your product, could you go into that a little bit and tell us, has it changed over the past couple of years at all? Comparing like 2020 to 2021, we did need to like sacrifice on our profit margins. And that was mostly affected by the increased shipping and logistical costs. But yeah, we always aim at having a profit margin of uh, 80%, which is quite good. Like in the beauty industry, the margins are, are... are quite good yeah I know you mentioned you're entering your seed round but in terms of employees what's your revenue if you're comfortable sharing so yeah we just recently passed the milestone of selling 100,000 units so that was a great achievement wow <laughs> congrats yeah thanks a lot and in terms to revenue well last year uh, we had a revenue of 2 million euros and the goal for this year is 3.5 we still have a lot of work to do, <laughs> but I'm pretty <laughs> confident that we are getting there. At the moment, our team has eight people, including me and my boyfriend. The focus at the moment is obviously in scaling. Uh, we are looking into going to a couple of new markets this year. And one big thing that we are focusing on at the moment is product development. Yes, um, expand the range. Yeah, we need to expand mm-hmm. the range because we want to be a f- like all-in-one home salon brand that goes beyond hair care as well. So uh, there are a lot of like products in the pipeline at the moment. And we have a half-time employee who is focusing on product development. So that makes things so much more easier because before this it's been only me working on the on mm-hmm. launching products so uh yeah we're now in a better position in terms of product development <laughs> i just want <laughs> to say <laughs> that that is amazing georgiana like honestly congratulations that is no mean feat oh thank you thank <laughs> you if you had awesome. a million euros at the start of your entrepreneurial journey what would you spend it on looking back now 
At the beginning, definitely, I would use it for building up a team. I think I hired the first full-time employee only after one year after we started. And it was honestly very, very exhausting to manage and everything on your own. So yeah, that's an easy one, building, building a team. Building a team, for sure. It is so hard to go from like the different departments in your brain. You know, even that is just exhausting, let alone, you know, the hours and the crushing weight of responsibility, as I like to say. (laughs) Yeah, it's very overwhelming. (laughs) It is, it is. So in terms of just like being a founder, starting the company... I know it's obviously changed you kind of settle into it Mm. after a year of running it but I'm wondering what's like the most unexpected thing you found was was it what you thought it would be running your own business most definitely not (laughs) so there are a couple of things that took me by surprise first of all at the beginning the amount of rejections that I received so even like finding the manufacturer before I did eventually found the one that we partner up with I was rejected by so many suppliers and it's mentally very exhausting to get all those no 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 but I also came to learn that that made me very persistent. And today I'm probably a bit annoying. I never, (laughs) I never hear the word no. I always hear like find another way to get what you want. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) But I think like being persistent is something that should not be underestimated. Because I mean, if you are to give up every time you are rejected or you get a no, you will not get anywhere. So you will just need to push through. And then another thing is the perception about failing. So I know, like when I started, I kind of like allowed myself to fail because that was the thing that I told myself, like the worst thing is not trying at all. And I know that if I now try and fail, it will not be worse than not trying at all. The perception of failing basically for me back then meant that I will just run out of business, (laughs) but I didn't really acknowledge that even though I might succeed and my business might actually like work out, there will still be so many challenges and failures that I will need to, to handle along the way. So, uh, yeah. And also like the bigger the company grew, the more failures I experienced. And uh, again, I'm going back to the fact that I was very naive when I started. And that was only a good thing, in my opinion, because if I probably if I would have known how uh, like rocky the journey would be, I will most probably would have been too scared of even starting. Yes, completely agree. Yeah, I would never have got out of bed and decided to do it. Um, but yeah, it's interesting. I think a lot of what you say is sort of, there's things we, we told ourselves going into it, but it's much harder to actually live by those things when you're in it and you're getting the rejections. Definitely. I was definitely victim. I mean, of all of that, but very much like this is a great product and everyone else see that. Yeah. Whereas it's like, no, you have to prove it to them and you have to show them time and time again. It's not going to be as easy as people just see a good product and feature you in their magazine or put you on shelf yeah and it's your baby at the end of the day and you see your baby in a certain light but you need to prove it to the others uh, because they're seeing it for the first time they don't nothing about it and you need to show them why this is something that you actually need to take seriously 
So I was just going to ask you, what's your best piece of advice you could give to someone who was thinking of launching their business this year? Is is that one of them? Stop waiting for the right moment, because if you (laughs) wait for the right moment, that moment will never come. Start as soon as you can and be ready to or don't try to be too perfect at the beginning, because in my opinion, perfection comes later, if ever. And also one probably great advice would be to recover setbacks fast and recover them in a way that you actually reflect back and try to think what you can learn from that challenge or setback Mm -hmm. or failure or whatever it is. Because in my opinion, those are the best lessons that you can get. And yeah, it's, uh, it's, part of the the game there is no in my opinion there is no success without without failures as well so uh those needs to be cherished absolutely this next section of questions which is also our final set are called quick fire are you ready (laughs) i'm ready (laughs) so what's your morning routine i hit straight to the gym then walk back home and then around probably nine o'clock i'm already on my laptop starting the work day and how would you rate your work-life balance? Believe it or not, I will rate it quite good. Even though I work very long hours, I am quite good at switching off. So whenever I shut down my laptop, <laughs> I never think about the, the work. I usually just pick things up the next morning. So yeah, I would say I'm quite good at it. <laughs> That's really good. If you had to say one myth about being a founder, what would it be? Probably that founders are lone rangers. It's much simpler to believe that uh, one person creates and sustains success from start to finish. But in my experience, the reality is uh, much more complicated. And uh, yeah, there is no doubt that the successful founders probably know how to think independently and can act apart from a status quo. But being willing to act alone at the start isn't the same as continuing to stand alone over time. So yeah, building your team. I love and- that. Sorry? I love that. I've <laughs> it, never heard it, it that wasn't, before. It wasn't that quick though. But yeah. <laughs> How much sleep do you get? Ah, oh, I never sacrifice on sleep. So I always try to sleep eight hours and I sleep like a baby. I never have any any issues with that. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> what time do you start your day? Not your work day, but what time do you get up to go to the gym? 5.30 every morning. Wow. With the exception <laughs> of the weekends. Weekends, not that early. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just looking at Alex's face. That's why I'm laughing. <laughs> um, what time do you end your day? Uh, my work day, probably around seven, eight o'clock. And then I go to bed around 9.30-ish. It's wow. not a lot of free time there. <laughs> no, not really. But I mean, we have still the weekends and I usually never work <laughs> in the weekends. Oh, that's good. How much caffeine do you drink in a day? I'm actually more a tea drinker. So I only drink one cup of coffee in the morning and then the rest of the day I drink tea. What do you do to mitigate stress? I'm quite lucky I don't get easily stressed. I'm good at handling pressure. But the best way for me to switch off is definitely cooking. So yeah, that's my my hobby. What's your go-to dish? Uh, I, I like doing a lot of like a different kale salads. There are like a lot kale of variations salad. that I like to, to do. Yeah. Gosh, you sound like healthy, a real Georgia. healthy. Yeah. <laughs> I can be unhealthy too. Usually the weekends are, are more unhealthy. Not waking up at 5.30 and not going to the gym and not eating kale salad. So yeah, there are guilty pleasures as well. <laughs> and finally, what's 
the your favorite thing about running answer definitely that the every day is different <laughs> and you never know what to mm -hmm. expect so you'd never get bored amazing that's a wrap thank you so much georgiana for your time it was so good to speak thank to you. you thank you that was really fun Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode of Female Founders Weekly with Georgiana Gurdishi of Answer. Female Founders Weekly was created by myself, Sarah Weingust, the founder of Hostel Pass, and Alex Pletherow, founder of Freedom Underwear. You can find us on Instagram at Female Founders Weekly, on TikTok at Female Founders Weekly, and with any questions, you can email us at femalefoundersweekly at gmail.com. Thanks for joining. Bye.